0: Are you ready to begin?
1: I am. Well, hello. This is Sad Girl Syllabus, a commentary on media through the ages. Each season, we have a new syllabus to dive into. I'm Bethany. And I'm Mary. And we are two girls. Too sad.
0: Let's dive into the syllabus.
1: (laughs) Hooray! We have another guest today. Yes,
0: very (laughs) special episode.
1: Yes, Um, Susan Ferber is uh, an author of her debut novel, The Essence of an Hour, which came out, published in 2021. We are so excited to have you, Susan. Welcome.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here.
1: Yay! Yay! And uh, Susan's novel is quite aligned with the theme of sad wives, sad girls waiting at home during the war. Um, this episode is specifically about the time period between World War I and World War II, known as the Lost Generation. Um, and this idea of, it's intriguing because it's, it's truly this, uh, everybody is in limbo, tri- be- completely haunted by World War I but it's still out of reach the direct experience
2: mm-hmm. of World War
1: I is a little out of reach and then and and then there's a threat of World War II um, and something that Mary and I have talked about a lot is this idea of um, of when the conflict is on home turf versus when it's far away and, mm-hmm. and like the effect of that
2: Yes, I think that's a huge thing. I think um, one of the things is is I'd written the first draft of this, well, actually 10 years ago uh, now when I was 19 and had never left America. And now when I was rewriting the second draft, or wasn't the second draft, I mean, there were many in between drafts and um, all those things, but sort of the full rewrite from scratch. uh, I was 26, 27, and I had been living in England for a long time. And one of the big things that's different is when you talk about the war, the Second World War, um, especially their understanding of it is very different than our understanding as Americans, where I think it Mm -hmm. is, you know, for us, it seems like this glorious thing that's quite far away. You know, we have those sort of war films, um, very propagandistic about, you know, went in there, beat them. And, you know, it was great Um, versus here. There's really that damaging of the blitz, but also, you know, that constant threat about what was going to happen, you know, how different places, in continental Europe were you know, destroyed by it for a very long time. And, you know, mm-hmm. that legacy of what the First World War had done um, to countries in Europe where, you know, generations of young men were lost. And again, especially something like the First World War where America was only in that for a little bit of time. And yeah. we've never really had uh, the immediate threat. I mean, there's there were some threats of invasion into America, but it wasn't every single day that you didn't know if you were going to wake up the next day. Um, so I think we have a very different conscientious uh, way of relating to the past than people do here. Um, and I'm, I'm just saying more people our age or people who you know, have no real connection with the wars, um, even just in our imagination, is very different. So actually where I live in London is a place called Pimlico, uh, which is kind of interesting. And that uh, I live in sort of one of the, I guess it's like 18th, 19th century flats. But then, Mm. like, a lot of the flats around us um, are council estates. And I will always say, like, well, that's Mm. actually the flats that had been bombed during the war. So that is, Mm. you know, like a relic of what had been put up after it had happened. Also, Charles de Gaulle lived around here. So that's kind of exciting. Whoa. (laughs) So so that's kind of my like Second World War um, tentative connections. You have the ghosts. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And there was a murder in my basement, but that is completely unrelated. <laughs> in the that, basement was victo- that was a Victorian murder, I think, by some NP. Oh. I don't know. A Victorian ghost. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> also
1: very sad girl. Jane Eyre. Yes. Like. <laughs> yeah. Wuthering <laughs> Heights. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting because the material reality then affects, um, because I think that it like in America, it's so, as you said, propagandistic and the, what the women are doing while they're like at home, um, not on the, not on the war lines, they're like at home and like, they have this, a certain like are you doing for the war effort kind of thing and it's just and the war is they benefit from being totally abstracted from the war and then like being a woman at home when you're in the zone of conflict has much more to do with reconstruction
2: yes i think that yeah i think that's a really interesting point i mean a lot of kind of the inspiration for this novel that i wrote was um, my grandparents lived through the Second World War and were a little bit younger than the characters in this novel. Um, but you know, when my grandmother would speak about the war, she didn't really ever say a lot about it. Her number one memory was that they had to, um, they couldn't get stockings or they couldn't get tights. So they used to have to get like foundation. Um, and like color their legs with this foundation powder, so it looked like they were wearing stockings. And then they would get wow. the eyeliner pencil and draw the seam up the back of their leg. <laughs> and that's like the thing she would talk most about. And you're kind of like, you lived through one of the most significant periods <laughs> of the you know 20th century. Yeah, and then that's that's sort of what you remember. Um, uh, yeah. never talked about any other sort of rationing. It was always that specific memory. <laughs> and then one time I got her to talk about VE day. Um, and she, you know, was, I think she was like 14 or 15 when it happened. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, you know, family members were in the war and think like, you know, they weren't like completely not exposed yeah. to it, but that was sort of her... What she had taken away from it was that deprivation of not being able to get something that made her feel glamorous. I don't. So I think that's kind of where the character <laughs> Lily for me sort of comes from. Um, mm. To some extent, is just trying to imagine, you know, how that how that would feel. Because I think one of the things when, again when we try to imagine back into history, we mm-hmm. imagine ourselves actually doing great things, and we imagine ourselves as part of as part of history, um, and obviously we are always part of history but I wanted to think about how do actual people kind of get on with their lives while huge huge things are happening around them and I think for most people you you do just get on with your life Um, and you know that there are there are big moments occurring and we've lived through that now with COVID where you know a lot of the time it just felt really boring and (laughs) yeah you're part of this you're part of the story you're part of you know, the, the sacrifices or, you know, that that bigger narrative. And you could tell people later on, oh, this is what I was doing while that was going on. But we're not really necessarily involved in the big in the big moments of it. Um, yeah. And again, for me, so much historical fiction is about, oh, people who are actually at the big moments. But I'm I'm really I've always been really attracted to history and interested in. Yes. But what do normal people's lives look like? How do you you know, what's it like when it's just the headline in the background And you you care more about whether you have a date that night or not, because I think actually for most people, that is what they care about, um, which is very selfish. And again, a big thing for me is that the book is about American privilege and it's about a very privileged girl who is able to divorce herself from the greater events of the war and what the, you know, what that looks like, what the ramifications of that looks like in a way that she has this personal tragedy, yet her tragedy is nothing compared to what is going on globally at that time
0: yeah yeah I would I would really love the narrator voice in um this book it was so distinct and I think yeah you uh, you immediately are thrown into you're like okay yeah uh, as like an 18 year old girl at this time what would be the priorities in your life um and then this particular character Um, how does she navigate life while these things are, you know, constantly looming. And then you also have her as a narrator in the future, having some perspective Mm -hmm. on, on those, on her past and what her priorities were, but at the same time, still understanding herself, you know, like that she's like, well, yeah, like, of course I didn't, I didn't really care. You know, like this is what I was working towards. I like wanted to lose my virginity I wanted to fall in love you know I wanted all these big things to happen in my life it wasn't the larger world wasn't yet totally a concern
2: yes and I think that's so much as I said it's so much a part of what I wanted to do with it is to think about how how selfish you are at that age especially um, where she's completely internal and, you know, there are reasons why I think she's even more um, sort of isolated and insular than uh, even, you know, the the sort of normal or whatever normal is um, sort of teenage mind, but you know already at that age you are you're just you're a very different person than you are a few years later so I think having written the first draft when I was sort of late teens and then setting it aside for a long time then rewriting it from scratch because that idea that she does reflect back had always been there Mm -hmm. Um, however when I wrote it at 19 it basically sounded like me at 19 trying to write (laughs) versus when you are writing again when I was in my later 20s, I was able to, to reflect back. Um, mm-hmm. But I was happy that draft was there. And then I went back and like found my old diaries and stuff because just the just the vocabulary or your syntax mm-hmm. or the way you speak and you think and how how immediate everything feels, uh, I think you lose that. Even by the time you sort of in your 22, 23, you've matured yeah. enough that it doesn't feel you know, if this doesn't happen by tomorrow morning, I, I, I just can't make it. Like that is, it feels very <sighs> yeah. immediate. Um, you know, sort of your thought process. And again, I think that's because you haven't connected enough with the world or with other people. You are constantly in your own mind and you haven't learned, um, you haven't learned how to relate and how to, you know, sort of understand how your narrative fits with other people's narratives. And I guess that kind of goes into, she can't do that on a personal level. She can't really understand how she um, can fit in with other people or how their stories can matter just as much as hers do, hers does. Um, and that kind of goes into the wider ramifications of, you know, she, as I said, she's suffering this personal tragedy while the world is, you know, going through, um, you know, about to go through a war or mm-hmm. had you know, already been in war for a few years in Europe. Uh, so she, you know, she's, yeah, so she's just sort of very, very um, self-obsessed and solipsistic. But aren't we all at that age? <laughs> yes. true. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it's
1: absolutely true. Um, I guess I uh for a little bit of extra context, um, we can just introduce the the book um and say that it's this.
0: <laughs> we just went in.
2: <laughs> Mary and I always do that too. Like we're always do- <laughs> you just going for it. Yeah, no, I I do you know I always hate describing what it's about. I'm really I'm not very good at it. <laughs> If you want to go for it, please do.
1: <laughs> um, I can see that it's it's like it's the proximity. Like <laughs> you can't describe it because you have, you know, your pro you have ten years of proximity to it. Um, but yeah, the essence of an hour is is a coming of age story for Lily Kerrigan, the main character and narrator, and uh, the the voice f- goes between her lived experience when she was coming of age when she was 1718 and then is also the narrator is also reflecting back as she is an older woman um and into her adulthood and she's reflecting back on coming of age in um 1940 1941 um about to, graduating high school about to leave for university and um And, but specifically going to Vassar, going to an all women's school, which I think is interesting if we, in, in the context of, um, I think Mary and I read the three guineas essay, um, and, uh, and it's, that's, I want to go back to that at some point today. Um, but it's interesting to this, like women's education perspective, Mm -hmm. um, figures centrally, but, um, in any case, yeah, Lily Kerrigan is coming of age and she's reflecting on, um, sort of first love maturing into her first love um having remorse about uh like hindsight remorse about her first love and also ushering her best friend through a major life crisis um and uh and 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 sort of the reflection of that and there's again yes always this threat looming of of the war there's like a it, being in between wars is very unsteady. You get the sense that it's very unsteady for building up your identity. Um, and yeah, it's perfect for constructing the sad girl.
2: <laughs> yeah, she very much is a sad girl. Um, she, that's why like when She's I was really listening perfect. to your show, I was like, oh my gosh, like I, I'd love to come on and talk with you both because um, you really appreciate the, the idea of the sad girl uh and what that can mean and how that sort of goes through different iterations um Mm -hmm. and different you know as you I think you were saying one of your episodes like there's different there's sort of different stereotypes of it or like slightly twisted cliches of it um that you go down different genres but ultimately it comes back to that same sort of um sort of prototype Mm -hmm. yeah
0: the Lily is a great sad girl um, <laughs> I loved her.
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you for liking her. Some people like genuinely just don't like her, um, which I can kind of, I can get, I can get, yeah. uh, and I think when I had sat down to write it, I had wanted to do something like, um, like catch her in the eye where you kind yeah. of, you either immediately get Holden Caulfield or you're like, this person is whiny and w- what real problems does he have to complain about? <laughs> I just don't feel like reading about this for, you know, 200, 300 pages or whatever. Um, and people feel really like visceral about their dislike of Holden Caulfield if they, if they don't. So I, I get it. Um, and that's, as I said, what I set out to do was that sort of immediate voice that you kind of know this person gets you, you get them they think about things and, and she's really nasty. Like she says horrible things about her friends. Yeah. Again, mm-hmm. I think she really wants to say those things about herself.
1: Yeah. Um, and she sort yeah. of
2: projects it outward. Again, what you do at sort of 18 years old. Um, But
1: what does she say? She's like, I hate blonde women or like, I hate all women,
2: blonde <laughs> <Yes>. women especially. <laughs> she really hates other women a lot. And I think a lot of that is because she's in a you know she's in a society where she's not really allowed to be around anybody but women um and I forget I think I was listening to this What was I listening to this it was on the guilty feminist podcast somebody was talking about this and I was like yes that completely sort of um I think captures what the book does too which is this idea that women are never pitted against men um, or at least certainly not in that period because of course a woman couldn't compete with a man. Um, and so the women always, always were just competing against each other and they knew there were so few spots that they would be allowed into. So it becomes very, it's um, very competitive and very nasty. And, mm-hmm. you know, you want to throw people under the bus because you want to get up. And I like to think we've come past that period um, of women's history but I, I do still think that there is a, a lot of that uh, that still goes For on sure. I think you know to some degree right. <laughs> Bethany having been to an all-women's um university we probably understand that
1: and Mary went to an all-women's high school did yeah. you okay so I think yeah. yes
2: I I mean there's some people who think I mean maybe maybe both of you do have more positive things to say about single sex education <laughs> um I think I think it's kind of a very I found it quite negative because, again, like you were only competing against your own sex, and I don't think it really prepares you for the real world. Um, especially, mm-hmm. sort of all women together, it it sort of does program you to think, I, at least in my experience, to say, "Oh, you're not going to be competing with men; you'll just be competing with each other." Um, mm-hmm. And I don't find that a safe space or like a space I could like experiment being, you know, a leader. I, I'd rather have been in sort of mixed education and just thought, like, well, I'm, I am the equal of a man. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. so I a lot of that actually goes into the novel, having had yeah. that experience of being in an all-women sort of institution for college, university, and could could sort of extrapolate that experience and try to imagine what a world would have looked like 50, 60, now 70, almost 80 years ago. Um, that, you know, if that was all you really had, um, that there weren't really mm-hmm. any alternative voices saying, "No, this is this is what a woman can be," or "These are you know valid career options for you." I mean, the second sex hadn't even be, been written yet, so second yeah. feminism mm-hmm. hadn't even you know really begun for somebody like Lily Kerrigan. She is she is living in a world where yes, and that's why it sort of takes place in that very specific moment of yes, she can go to university, yes, she can get a degree. Yes, she can pretend she's going to have a career maybe for a year or two, but right. she's going to have to get married and she's going to have to have children. And that yeah. is going to be her life. She is she's is a certain type of girl. And those are the expectations for her, you know, essentially for her class and for what um, you know, what women have done before her and what you know, she would expect, you know, to have a daughter and she goes on to do. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously there's lots of women who chose not to have that sort of life But again, she's in a very segmented part of the world. She's from a very small town. Um, She's surrounded by people who are very religious as well. Um, Mm -hmm. Catholic too. So there's no talk of birth control. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she is expected that if she can have lots and lots of children, that's what she's going to have to do. Um, There are no other there are no other choices for her, I don't think, versus I think she had when she goes to New York City and she meets other young women from slightly different backgrounds, they kind of say, well, there are other choices you can have. You Mm -hmm. can have a good time as a woman or you can choose to have a career maybe. Um, But she just, she would never have been exposed to that. She doesn't have any other role models except to to stay home. And yes, she reads novels. Those are her only role models. Those are her only Mm -hmm. um, sort of, that's her only understanding outside her own world is through a novel. But obviously those are usually very fictional women. Um, right. who are living you know very very glamorous lives so she doesn't really know how to how to sort of you know posture herself i think
1: mhm mhm and and also novels the novels that she's reading you could say she's reading things like wuthering heights or jane Eyre as well <laughs> and she's and she's being sort of bombarded with a, a That's original sad girl like 19th century (laughs) (laughs) or she's reading
0: fitzgerald which is has another kind of like caricature of a sad girl yes
2: yeah yeah i think she's reading she's reading a lot of sad girl literature um I was reading too Um, Yeah, exactly. let's be clear like her reading her reading taste is eerily similar to the authors Um, and especially when I was that age too where it is you know she sort of has graduated a little bit from reading Wuthering Heights Jane Eyre she's clearly read that a little bit younger her teen years she's going through this period where she's reading a lot of um not quite contemporary it's slightly you know slightly 10-15 years out of date by the time she's reading it uh but you know, it's still pretty, pretty contemporary literature. It's not, it certainly is not, you know, these aren't considered classics quite yet. um Right. The way we think of the Great Gatsby or, you know, anything by Hemingway. So she likes, she likes the modernist literature. She reads Virginia Woolf. She's reading Mrs. Dalloway, for instance. Mm-hmm. um So she is, you know, she's trying to, I think, understand what, what a modern woman looks like, but also her idea of a modern woman is dated in itself and that she's looking at like someone like zelda fitzgerald in yeah. the 1920s not really how the women look in her town in 1941 <laughs> so yeah um and that's something else i found quite interesting is i think sometimes when we think about history we kind of group certain periods together and we think okay that's you know like a 20-year block oh everybody was kind of the same during that period um but one thing i found really sort of interesting when I was reading a lot of novels set around this time period when I was trying to research writing sort of what became not the final final draft but like sort of the big rewrite draft um and got the sense that, you know, writers were, especially American writers were already quite upset by like the late 1930s, 1940s, that they had missed out on that golden age of the last generation in Paris, mm. um that they mm. could recapture that, that the Great mm. Depression had come and then the, the war had come. And, you know, that already, I think that felt as lost to them as like, we feel it is lost. And that's 100 years ago versus 20 years ago. Um, so I was quite interested in that you know, they they too couldn't quite recapture Hemingway, but everybody, especially the male writers and the male writers who would go through the Second World War and come out of it are all writing these novels in response to their time in the mm-hmm. Second World War. Um, and they're all trying to be Hemingway. Like they're all trying to write like Hemingway. And yeah. that's kind of why Lily wants to write like Hemingway as well, because I think all the, again, she always wants to compete against men. She doesn't want to compete about, against women, even though the, those, you know, that's who she is allowed to compete against Mm -hmm. um so she i think that's why she goes toward those very very masculine authors having had a basis in reading you know quite quite sad girl literature when she was you know a little (laughs) bit younger before the novel starts
1: yeah it's kind of like joe march mary made this point during the civil war corps episode that joe wants to like adventure with the boys Right. yes yeah. yeah
2: yeah no she very much isn't i mean what what i mean what woman can write what person can really write a novel post little women and not be indebted to <laughs> <laughs> indebted to the character of joe march i think she is such a um she is such a, a role model such a heroine for the ages and i think you know lots of um lots of female writers especially talk about their first experience of reading little women and how much that influenced kind of their development and thinking mm-hmm. like, oh, I can be, I can be anything, um, if you know Joe March could do it. So like Simone de Beauvoir was really inspired by her, for instance, like reading that at the beginning of the mm-hmm. 20th century. So again, I think Lily has clearly read Little Women, and Teddy is named Teddy because that is what Joe calls Laurie, if you remember. Oh,
0: I didn't even connect that. Oh my god! So that That's is incredible. The little,
2: that is the little <laughs> that is So thing. good. Yeah, my husband read it and he was like, is, is this character just supposed to be Lori? And I was like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> yeah, right. Because they're like very
0: similar also, grew up together. They're like almost like two of the same kind of people is what everyone tells them. Yes, that's perfect. I love that.
1: That's also very Wuthering Heights, very like Heathcliff and Kathy being like, whatever our souls are made of, they are the same.
2: Yeah. So that's like a huge, I mean, those are, those are the books I love. And I think those are the books that Lily is supposed to love. And she, whether Teddy is, and that's the thing I love about a character like Teddy is Mm. we have no idea who Teddy is. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. We only know
2: Teddy through Lily. And I don't think, I think he's probably actually a very sort of just basic young man. But she has, you know, um, made this myth of him and made him into this great Hemingway-esque hero, also met yeah. with this Eastcliff uh, way of him. And again, one of the things, I mean, I don't know, lots of people don't like this reading, but my particular reading of Wuthering Heights, I go for the, they're kind of related incestuous. I did too. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think they are. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, again, like there's, is that thing like where, Uh, Lily and Teddy look like there's not supposed to be any implied incestuousness between them by the way but again that's sort of like comments that people make like you know you sort of look very similar to each other Um, you're very similar as people and Mm -hmm. I think one character asks them like oh are you together she's like no like oh you brother and sister then it's kind of like that's weird why would you jump from one to the other Right. again that, that sort of feeling of Heathcliff and Kathy where it's kind of there's, there's something more to them than just being in love it's sort of that like destiny of um mm-hmm. something pulls them together yeah um, or like Jane Eyre what is it in Jane Eyre the the pooling underneath the underneath the rib <laughs> oh yeah oh my god <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so yeah Definitely. no it's um
1: I don't know <laughs> um I think it's funny I I immediately um understood Lily to be like holding coffee Caulfi- Yes. Um, yeah. I I like very, but I also, I'm curious to know, Mary, if you thought Catcher in the Rye.
0: Yeah, to some degree. I was like, okay, so there's no way I can trust this narrator about the events that are actually happening. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, she's really unreliable. What I like about Lily, though, is that she, <laughs> she's read so many books. So she admits to you really quickly that she's read a lot of books, she understands how the unreliable narrator works. Right. So she knows what she's doing with you as a reader. Yeah. Um, and she's trying to manipulate you. And I think she says like at certain points where it's, right, I'm not really telling the truth and none of us can tell the truth when we remember, but I'm really probably not telling the truth. And yet she knows she's doing it. So you kind of, I think that's where I think you can like her because you go, mm-hmm. oh, okay. And then you, you get into her head and you forget that she's not telling the truth all the time. And she kind of buys yeah. you in that way, I think. Um, yeah. But you know, I, yeah,
0: she's much more honest than I feel like Caulfield is
2: with yeah. himself um, yes. in that book. <laughs> <laughs> and I hadn't read the bell jar when I, when I wrote the first draft, I hadn't yet read the bell jar. Oh, okay. Um, I had just finished reading Franny and Zoe So again, another mm. Salinger, Franny, Franny especially, is is very, is very much a um, very, very sad girl. <laughs> she goes and has yes. like a breakdown in her fur coat in the, the bathroom of a restaurant. Um and I was like, oh, something like that needs to go in. <laughs> that really that really spoke to me. Iconic. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, then I remember reading The Bell Jar, and I just I just finished writing it, um, and I wrote it very quickly in a few weeks that first draft. And then I read The Bell Jar, and I was like, "Damn it! Like she's already done it. Like there is no like it really is just perfection." And you know, she that unreliable narrator and that that really um, that really sort of very visceral damaged um, hatred of women. And I reread Mm -hmm. The Bell Jar a few months ago actually coming up to 30 um, because I, I think again sort of like the essence of an hour it is a book about turning 30 in many ways it's about mm-hmm. Sylvia Plath or her character Vesta Greenwood you know writing what happened to her when she was 18 19 and you know what she went through that summer when she she fell apart and then the attempted suicide um, mm-hmm. and then her, her treatment and you don't really get a lot of clues though in that what's happening to her when she's writing this book um, where Esther is supposed to end up, you just get this idea that she does actually get, she gets married and she has a baby. So she has to some degree um, bought into the life that mm-hmm, has been sort mm-hmm. of put out for her when she's a student. Um, so I've always, I've always found that really interesting how, how, how that's handled. And of course you can't read the bell jar um without without thinking about Sylvia Plath's biography I mean it's just right so, it's just so much there um but yeah I think again that 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 for me really really came out this time reading it was just how much she hates other female characters
1: yeah she has
2: no friends and I thought well actually my book is a little bit different in that it is more centered on female friendship I think than than something like the bell jar where I think Sylvia Plath's Esther Greenwood is, is completely alone. Um, I think someone like Lily is very much alone and she can't connect with other people. And she's always just missing out on those connections. Um, but I do think the, the supporting cast characters are a little bit nicer. <laughs> um, with someone <laughs> like Billy, is it, yeah. And Buddy Willard, um, or the women <laughs> in, 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 the bell jar who, you know, she's just really, really, really awful about this.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: the <laughs> Sorry.
0: it's
2: like I do need to reread that but can I <laughs> yeah yeah like it's, it's an interesting it's like some of these books are really interesting I think to go back to um yes if you read I like I don't know if I could ever reread Catching the Rye I remember I read it when I was 16 17 I was sick off my day from school and I just like started in the morning and read it in one day
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it was the most perfect experience and you think can I go back to it or will I read it as an adult? And I think some books it really helps to read as an adult. So I really appreciated rereading the bell Jar and thinking through um, some of the things versus when you do read it as a teenager, you're like, yeah, right on. Totally get it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. Thank you. And then you sort of reread it as an adult. You're like, okay, that's interesting. How do we think through that? Um, but Yeah. Sometimes I think you do need to just leave it. I mean, I have a confession. I've only read Wuthering Heights once and I was 13 and it was such a perfect experience. I can never go back to it.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I was, um, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Leave it at 13. That's (laughs) no, I mean, I love it, but that's where it belongs. That memory. Yeah. Intact. Like I am afraid
2: I'm going to go back to and hate Heathcliff because I reread, Sorry, we've really digressed. I'm just like ranting about (laughs) this. (laughs) This podcast is about digressions.
1: That's our theory brand is non sequiturs.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I reread Jane Eyre and I reread it for the, this is the third time I read it. Not this Christmas, but the Christmas before. And Jane Eyre is one of my favorite books. And I felt like I'd gone through a breakup with it after I read it because (laughs) I was just like so disgusted by Rochester. And I was like, when I'd read it again at 13 and 18, I was like oh jane like i'm totally you I, I get it i think also when you're a teenager you relate too heavily to characters you you can't mm-hmm. see beyond how your your lives are very different than their lives um mm-hmm. you sort of just put your story on you map yourself too closely onto them and that, that can be quite damaging um yeah you need to kind of get past that and so then when you read it as an adult you can as i was saying you can think about it a little bit more analytically um, yeah. and understand as a as a work and not just as like shelf therapy, I think is what they call it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I just did not like Rochester. He's like, how does she, how does she forgive him for locking his wife in the attic? Like there's not, there's not explained enough. Like she's just kind of like, oh, would you lock me in the attic? And he's like, no. And she's like, okay, still can't be <laughs> going to take you at your, like, it's just crazy to me that she, there, there's so much grounding at the beginning of the red room. Yeah. So I'm just really ranting. Now. <laughs> no, <it's okay. laughs> Out of this. no, I uh,
0: in a way, I actually think come because I love Jane Eyre I love Jane Eyre more than Wuthering Heights when I read it, which had to be like around fourteen fifty. Yes. for both of them. And Wuthering Heights, I actually had a really hard time reading the first time. Okay. The second time I read it, I was in college and I liked it a lot more because I could understand the drama i think a little bit better like oh this is supposed to be heightened i didn't really get into that i think when i first read it but jane Eyre, i think rochester in a way is worse than heathcliff even though heathcliff (laughs) is like murderous (laughs) um i agree because he's so manipulative like he is beyond manipulative
2: and then he gets redeemed at the end simply because he loses an eye like yeah he (laughs) It's like what, and then he's really? supposed to be like, oh, okay, it's all right. He's lost an eye, he's lost <laughs> some of his masculinity. She's inherited money from this dubious <laughs> colonialist dealing in the Caribbean. Like, it's, yeah. it's not okay. Um, yeah, it just really, it just really is. There's, it's, it's, a very problematic text, and in lots of ways that I had not um, had not recognized when I read it as a teenager. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hmm yeah
0: yes there's um sorry I'm fully going digression but I one thing I don't think we <laughs> ever talked it. about in the um the gothic lit um, season is uh I don't know if this is how you pronounce her last name but Jean rise yes or, Re- yeah yeah Re- yeah R- wide Saragossa yeah. sea yeah um, which is from the perspective of uh, Rochester's first wife yeah. um yeah who lacks cinematic? Uh, <laughs> but she is also actually tying in a magra, like one of these modernist women
2: mm-hmm. who
0: live these very sort of sad shadow lives
2: to the rest of
0: their male counterparts.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and she was such a talented. I love Jean Reese. I think she has mentioned in *In Essence of an Hour*. Yeah, she um, is. Yeah, because I, I love her, and she's a writer who is she's very famous for *White Sagacity* um but she had she wrote i think that in the 50s or 60s because mm. she'd written all these books in the 20s and 30s which are fabulous and they're all kind of about sad women um <laughs> having a really difficult time of it in london and paris men leaving them they have no money they're living in these bedsits and just sort of thinking what am i doing with my life usually yeah. end up having an abortion at some point and then the novel kind of ends um and she's written several of those, and they're all they're all fantastic. And then she disappeared for a while, and then she'd come mm-hmm. back with Wide to See. And lots of people know that work, but then they know, never go and explore her other work. Um, in addition to which, I think is is you know detriment to the to their lives. They should read everything yeah. she wrote. She's a fantastic writer. Um, I like to see her be be more well known, um, yeah. more celebrated. But I think, I think she is, I think she is getting some, some more recognition now, actually, which is, which is positive. Yeah.
1: It's, it's sort of exemplary of this, um, like women being constantly in relate known in relation to men, because it's like Jean Reese writes, uh, has, has a whole trove, um, of novels that she's written. And it's about the perspective of ordinary women, about the perspective of like what it's like to be, Um, to be left to have to make it on your own fair on your own when you are not meant to be in society on your own as a woman and then that's all that whole oeuvre is lesser known and then the thing that puts her on the map is writing it from the perspective of
2: it's Beth right yeah um Bertha yeah that wrote Bertha Bertha yeah I'm like (laughs) I map myself yeah (laughs) But I'm trying to think I'm if it ever says her name. I'm trying to think if it ever says her name in it. I think she goes by a different name in it. And I can't remember what it is. Right, 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 right. So I think but they give her the name Bertha. Yeah, yeah, it's like a more English yeah, yeah.
1: name. Yeah. And, but again, it's like she is only, Jean Reese finds her career success um, because she's writing in relation to the Rochester mm-hmm. character.
2: Yeah, it's, so it's, yeah. so it's just sort of like... I mean i could rant about this all day i could discuss this all day <laughs> about jane Eyre and charlotte bronte and you know how oh gosh it's just i really i i just don't understand how jane how jane gets past it how she how she yeah. goes okay that's fine um and I, I think you know that that's the kind of interesting of the thing about charlotte bronte again how she she you know obviously published under a male pseudonym um and you know saw herself again she saw herself mm-hmm competing with the men she wasn't interested Mm -hmm. in competing with the female novelists Mm
1: -hmm. and
2: she you know when it was published lots of people said oh it could never have been written by a woman um, because it's too muscular and it's too it's too sort of grotesque Um, and that that sort of I don't know I just find that quite interesting how she versus I think someone like Emily Bronte is is much more interested in poetry and you know sort of the sensuality of writing um, yeah rather vibes that sort of competitiveness that is in it seems to be in charlotte bronte in her biography Mm -hmm. i don't know maybe maybe again i'm putting too much too much on it
0: no i think i think that really comes across and also probably because we have so much more of charlotte's like letters and things like that where you really see her very deftly like navigating the field like
1: very analytically
0: like okay how am I going to approach this versus Emily which um is not as interested in like the ambition
2: I guess Mm -hmm.
0: comes across you know
2: and then we have Ann and I don't even know what's going on with (laughs) it
1: and yeah yeah. (laughs) it's just like she's in the corner (laughs) like doing her own thing (laughs) we'll just let that happen
2: because we we talking about lost generation literature aren't we?
1: <laughs> <laughs> they are the ancest- they are the ancestors too this is the lineage from which <laughs> from which the sad girls of the last generation are like born
2: into kind of thing. Yes and I um, think they are yeah they're kind of um one thing I find sorry I'm just I'm just gonna say this as well I find it interesting to to know now like something um like Ulysses the other day had its hundredth year anniversary being published right. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think we think Ulysses or certainly The Great Gatsby and Hemingway's work, they feel much more media and literature still, like they still feel like, oh, those are new classics. Mm -hmm. Um, But then if you think about it, the hundred years we have between Ulysses and us is only a few years difference between what Joyce had to Jane Austen and between Mm -hmm. Jane Austen and Joyce feels like huge.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, that's true.
2: And yet yeah. modernist literature still feels very much with us, I think. But, you know, these Victorian novels are still within within some of their generations, having grown up with it. Um, and, you know, lots of the you know, that's modernist literature. It's kind of trying to take a, a stand against it. Um, but, yeah, I read I think I think Fitzgerald is is still quite Edwardian. Like, I think he is still um, he's not as sort of modern, I think, as we sometimes think of him as. Um, yeah, sure. So I don't I don't know.
1: I, um, this is another, this is something that figures very centrally on the sad girl syllabus pod is this idea of timeless literature and, um, and how literature comes to be timeless and yes. specifically, like, I, I always think that it's a bit of a paradox where, um, it, the more you insert, like the, the essence of your time period, in, in wherever your novel is set, if you're putting, if you make a concerted effort to, if the, if the author is making a concerted effort to put in pieces of that time period, it becomes more timeless in a weird way. I'm not sure how to articulate that, how that paradox works, it's just something that I've observed.
2: So I know what you mean, and I think one of the things I tried to do when I wrote this book um, was to think about I want it to read as though it were published in the 1950s, as though mm-hmm. it is Lily's book that mm-hmm. she's that she's brought out. So again, a lot of the references to the war are never they're never big references. In the same way I think if you know, if we were to write a book about living through the times we live through. We wouldn't ever need to start with explaining like the socio-political reasons why something happened um you know like we would just kind of get it or you don't have to explain like what this this bit of technology was or why you behave that way it's just you buy into yes i grew up then those were the social mores i grew up with and those yeah. that's the history i grew up with um so you know she, she does talk about pearl harbor for instance because everybody has some sort of memory of Pearl Harbor my, my grandparents would talk um, that would be another thing they would mention would be where they were when they heard that Pearl Harbor had happened um, and that being quite like a defined sort of moment for them um, but other things again it's I was trying to capture what perhaps maybe a lived experience would look like a little bit more than that sort of historical fiction version where mm-hmm. you're kind of like and then this happened because this like is trying to like teach you history at the same time um, yeah Versus, I wanted, like, I love reading novels from those periods more so than I like reading historical fiction about those periods because you get that flavor of how the life actually was lived and how people spoke and what their concerns were rather than what our concerns are trying to map it back into them. Actually,
0: on timelessness, about the essence of an hour and a lot of, I think, the literature, both of the time Lily's supposed to be writing and the sort of literature she's writing out of for the modernists is actually this obsession with time, like a real nervousness about time. And I mean, it's literally called the essence of an hour. So <laughs> I guess you get that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but there is like so, so much, I'm saying a really great point here, uh, anticipation and like, and yeah, and uh, of, yeah, of fear and nervousness around time itself.
2: Is time going to run out? Um, I think there's also this obsession about youth um, that that kind of comes from the romantics onward uh, about, you know, is is genius only in youth? And once that fades, Mm. what, what, what happens after? Um, and again, the 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 quote, The Essence of an Hour, um my editor had actually found that for me um mm-hmm. to, to name the book after because she said, you know, the book talks a lot about Fitzgerald. I think we should look at using a Fitzgerald quote. And she found that, and that is from one of his early poems um that he wrote uh, while he was at Princeton. And it's it's about that losing of time. And I think again, that period is so much informed um by Proust and his um you know Swan's Way and Remembrance of Things Past and everything which I have to admit I've never been able to make it through all the books i me neither still, me neither nope. I'm still working <laughs> I'm still trying every year I bring well every few years I'll bring one on like um our summer holiday and I, oh, I just I just can't do it I think you have to be the sort of reader who can and I usually like really milky gorgeous prose but you yeah. really have to, like, commit yourself to the fact that you may only read, like, five pages a day and be okay yeah. with that. And I, it, I'm not that kind of reader.
1: It's the kind of um, thing where you, you need to be, like, fully, like, on a monastic retreat yes. to read. Yes. Like, you need to be, like, in a cloister with some monks or
2: nuns who are praying. <laughs> that's the only way that you can consume that book <laughs> and I have some Madelines with you as well obviously but, um, yes. <laughs> um yeah I've just never because I think I, I always I get into s- certain parts of it and you read you read sections of it and you're like oh that's the best thing I've ever read but then then I have to read you know a lot of things about how he he's like clearly like 20 years old and still worried about whether his mother is going to come and kiss him good night and I like I just can't <laughs> yeah i can't do like you know 30 pages on that 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 crisis moment um it's too much but i think i think that kind of sets up this idea and and the idea that youth could be lost as suddenly from the from the first world war onward that you could just be destroyed um and young people trying to trying to sort of find and locate themselves um within this world that will take their youth away and also i think as a young woman I think about this a lot that, you know, I think even now there's still certain pressures about um, being a young woman. And yep. then it would have been, you know, you had till 18, maybe till 20, 21 to be a person. And that was going yeah. to hit you, yeah. you. You were in your father's home and then you got married. And if you wanted any sort of sexual exploration, any sort of career, it had to be boiled down into a few years of that that glorious youth. Yeah.
1: If you were lucky enough to be able to afford college yes, and if your family could afford to send
2: you to a women's school. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so, Um, so few people would even have that experience. um, For most people, you know, it was very much, you grew up and you got married and that was your, that was your life. Um, And so I do think that there is, you know, there, there was this obsession around, uh, you know, what, what fun could be had before it would be lost. Um, and for someone like Lily as well, she, she's very much concerned about, um, about romance and love, but also about art and trying to trying to absorb as much as she can um, while she's young so that she can sort of channel that into, into writing and, and memories. Yeah, I think they're, they're, yeah you, you are right. There's this, there's this obsession about memory and what, what we leave behind um, mm-hmm. in our youth, but I think what we believe, leave behind in our, our times as well. Um, yeah and, and what we can't recreate ever i think
1: that um it wouldn't be me if i didn't bring up vampires at least once um, <laughs> um but this is like i think about this i think about the the problem of time um and eternity versus um uh versus finality mm. uh or finite of a, a finiteness um and I think that again there's women women especially have a very different relationship to time. Yes. I think women are um and and Susan you'll appreciate this Wittgenstein said <laughs> um <laughs> Um, Mary, the professor who introduced me to Wittgenstein is like mine and Susan's
2: like favorite person. <laughs> I
1: don't know if Patty is still your favorite person, Susan. She but... <laughs> is, she's my
2: idol. She read the book. I was so excited that she read the book. Aww.
1: Aww. That is so sweet. Um, oh, love Patty. Um, Patty Sayer.
2: uh, shout out to that sad girl. Um, <laughs> iconic. I mean, genuinely iconic. <laughs> Yeah.
1: Um, but Wittgenstein says, you know, the, uh, secret to eternal life is to live in the moment. And he really like captures something Mm. of like that. That's a sort of like the tension between like finality and, and eternity. Um, but I think that women have a unique relationship being so finite women live in a certain finiteness. Um, because they have like youth is their most powerful asset yes um and and also they don't have a man can live a f- several decades a very full life full of accomplishments and achievements before he even can needs to think about having a family yes. he can put yeah. a family you know, way off decades into the future and a woman, I mean, and, and I don't say this to be biologically essentialist or whatever, but women, if women want to even think about juggling, raising a family while also having a career, they are often forced to prioritize and make a decision. And, um, for, for decades leading up to centuries, leading up to now, it was never a choice It was just put everything away and aside to have a family because that's your role and that's what you're supposed to do. But you have, but again, you understand, like, okay, you have to be married off by the time you're eighteen, but um, twenty-one at the latest, so that then you can start having a huge family because other you only have twenty years to 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 have children. Yeah, yeah,
2: and I think that's what she. Somebody else was saying this as well. They were, they were reading Nora Ephron and they were saying um, like how Nora Ephron, when she writes, is just so obsessed with women's looks and the way mm-hmm. we aren't. And it was like, well, certain like women from the 50s and 60s and prior, like th- that was a real, like women used to, again, even like back to my grandmother and sort of the tights. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think that they, that they really saw their value in their clothes and the way they made themselves up and end up being judgmental of one another. And I think we still have that a lot, obviously. Um, but it was yeah. also that youth obsession of, you know, you need to accomplish this by a certain age. You have to, you have to get a man by a certain age. You, And then I think that's what Lily is really afraid of is she sees some women in her life and she thinks they look, they look quite, you know, for lack of a better word, they look quite haggard. They, they look much older yeah. than they need to beyond their years because they've, they've done this hard labor to their bodies Um, and they've, you know, they've committed to these roles and they're being told by society that because they are now a married woman and because they now have children, they're not, you know, a viable member of society. They're kind of in the shadows. And I think that's her great fear of after you hit a certain age as a woman, and we we still are living with this, um, that once you hit a certain age as a woman, you then, you then sort of disappear into the shadow world. And how do you, how do you, how do you get as much out of life as you can before that's going to happen?
1: Yeah. Yeah. You have to, and like, and what, and then you think about these pressures of, um, these timely pressures on a woman. And then you think about all of the things that women have done with this like pressure of time before them. And then you think, well, if a woman lived in a mortal life, damn, <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> How much more and, we
2: can accomplish. Um, that's why there
1: needs to be more women vampires in novels.
2: <laughs> oh, man, they're always men, aren't they? And they're like using eternity. Yes. They're using eternity in really like oh. not worthwhile ways. Boring, yeah. <laughs> like, frankly, like, oh, who cares if they're going to get wrinkles? um <laughs> sort of being like moody and stalky um but yeah no I think yeah I think yeah she she is she is sort of up against what she what she wants to do with her life but I was thinking about as well um one of your questions before coming on the show is about um sort of the myth of women on the war front and Mm -hmm. you know I've been listening to some of the other episodes and one thing that really strikes me and I still had I mean I don't know if you both had this in your you know sort of growing up but I certainly did. Um, that culture of, like, you even wait for a boy to call you on the phone. So to some degree, I think that's kind of how Lily is thinking. Like, she never, she's not a Joe March in that she ever thinks, like, oh, if I could go off to the war, you know, what I would do, like, it's a shame I can't be, um, if I could only be a boy in that way. She genuinely never thinks that. And I think that's probably quite true to who she is, but also perhaps a little bit true to the time as well, where it just wouldn't have crossed their mind. Like women just stayed home. Like she is of a world where women stay home. They wait for men to ask them on dates. They never make the first move. They are not the sexually experienced ones. They are, they, and she's trying to challenge those, um, Mm -hmm. those sort of those sort of stereotyped roles, but she still is of her time. She can't fully move past them. Um, that would I think be way too much to ask of her. She is, sure she still has that conditioning in her um but also I think you know to some extent at least certainly I did in my childhood still had a lot of that conditioning in me that men fulfilled certain roles and women fulfilled other roles Mm -hmm. and you know the the sexual politics of that and again I think has a lot to do with the place that you're in so you know I grew up in a very conservative place we went to a very conservative university Mm -hmm. um and those were the expectations around us versus you kind of get out of those worlds and then you're like they were the crazy ones, not me. <laughs> and that's really yeah. the, what I want for Lily um, as well as to get out of these expectations of where she is, because I think that there are, I think that there are places even within her, um, it was even within that time period that she would find more um, accepting of of what she would like to do with her life. And she would find actually more positive role models and more positive friends, Um, but she's not quite there yet. And I think that Mm -hmm. leads a lot to her being a very sad girl. Um, And I think that to me is what a sad girl is. I think a sad girl is uh, somebody who is, is sad because she is sort of up against the patriarchy and like, she can't ever fully find acceptance. She wants to be a certain person but society is telling her she can't be that person. And there's a lot of inner conflict there that could just be resolved by overthrowing the patriarchy. So that, that, <laughs> that would be my definition and my very simple solution.
1: That's literally what Virginia Woolf says. In I know. You know, it's really original. <laughs> but I mean, confused? that's the sort of like, Head banging thing is that like women are just like banging
2: their heads against the wall. And it's just like so many problems would just be fixed. <laughs> and it was really sad. So I finally read The Second Sex um, in twenty twenty one, and I'd put it off for years. I'd read parts of it, but when I finally yeah. read it, it was it was really frustrating in a lot of ways. Like we have made a lot of progress since it was first published at the end of the nineteen forties, but Simone de Beauvoir was saying like, oh, if women could only have an equal chance of education. We can move past this in a generation or two, and it was like, okay, we have had equal education probably for a generation or two, um, at least in you know something like America and you know certain mm-hmm. certain classes and certain privileges, and yet even within that, we still have not moved past. <laughs> um, so I was like, this is just way too optimistic. This is really <laughs> depressing. <laughs> that this- Continues
1: to make sad girls. Like the conditions are what make the sad girls. Yes,
2: I think so. I think so. And I, I think what I find really, sorry, not to bring it back to Jane Eyre, but I will always bring it back to Jane Eyre. Um, One thing I find really interesting to thinking about something like Jane Eyre is Jane Eyre is is a sad girl, but Jane Eyre isn't a sad girl by the end. um, Because Mm -hmm. she, she gets this money and she gets a man and she is going to be part of society. So like she, she is an outcast. She is an orphan, But ultimately, she finds her place within society. And yes, society has to bend to her worldview. Um, She doesn't fully subscribe to the things that like something like Helen Burns does or anything like that um, or Sinjin. Like she puts her own point of view forward. But ultimately, she like is folded into society versus Mm. someone like, um, like Esther Greenwood doesn't really fold into society then by the end of the bell jar. And Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the difference between, for me, sort of 19th and 20th century sad girls, (laughs) (laughs) or at least in coming of age narratives that they, it's, it's, it's a less, it's a less sanitized, probably more accurate, less optimistic version of what really happens, um, which is that, you know, you still are in conflict with society.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that, um, (laughs) I'm like Like, no, I'm I'm just like yeah, Jane Eyre. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) She does because that is like the whole thing is she gets money so she can finally be like an equal. Yes. People. Um, Right. Right. And I guess there is some internal like validation that she's going through too, but it is like yeah, she's gained enough money to be and a man of good standing to be. good standing i don't know uh
1: <laughs> yeah superficially good standing it's true and then superficial
2: like- standing um <laughs> yeah and
1: then it's kind of
0: if everything's resolved
2: yes yeah, so they have a baby and then he regains his eyesight and they live happily ever yes. like it is it's is I- cinderella it's a fairy tale yeah right that's
0: she- the epilogue where he regains his eyesight like what's I the point sound very baffling. <laughs> I was like, why make him lose it?
1: Yeah. And if you're going to like use that to like have sympathy for him, then like just like keep it that way. Keep it tragic. I don't know. Whatever. Like he doesn't need it back.
2: It's fine. Apparently there is a very, again, I think this comes from like toward 1970s, 1980s scholarship. So nobody really puts this theory forward anymore. (laughs) But people used to read it at a certain time and think that it was like he lost. It wasn't about his eye. It was about like he lost a ball. it was like part of that thing like he lost so he really was like to some degree emasculated oh my god <laughs> I'm bringing all the crazy readings today <laughs> I love that I love that
1: um uh <laughs> that's incredible <laughs> they Lance Armstrong him um yeah <laughs> I um I would love to, this is, this is not like related um, to, this is going back to the last generation. And I have two questions that I'm like form that I'm thinking about and formulating um, around there. But first of all, I wanna know your, both of your takes on this. Um, I was talking to my mother recently about World War II and, um, <laughs> uh, and cause, as Mary and I have been discussing World War II, I was talking a lot about Los Alamos um, and like me being situated in New Mexico, World War II is still like very, very present because the atomic bomb was manufactured and tested here. And, um, and there's so much like in the, in the history here about the, um, that sort of like very patriotic Mm. um, propagandistic legacy mixed with, now decades down the line, people, the, the downwinder community, um, people are trying to really advocate for, um, people who have lost family members due to atomic radiation. Anyway. Um, so that's like a, that's this like connection that I'm feeling here now. Um, my mom was telling me that in, when she's talked with my grandmother, who, and my grandmother was someone who was like uh, uh, very, again, like in New Mexico at that time, everybody bought into this, like, we need to build the atomic bomb and like how great it is that this is the place where we're testing it and whatever, whatever. And my mom says that the way that my grandmother frames it is um, like, we also didn't know what was going on. Cause my mom was like, why did it take the U S so long to enter into it? I mean, now we have, we, it, the history has, and hindsight has illuminated this sort of like, very like the eugenicist like Hitler basically the Nazis take a a book out a play out of the book of the U.S. you know like you you Mm -hmm. know the like uh the uh racism that was present in the U.S. and that's why the U.S. was so neutral but um but also my grandmother's perspective is like well we didn't know we didn't have information was not as immediate as broadcast news and so you don't know what's going on you don't really understand the atrocity of what's happening until it's like three years down the line. And and it's already it's already in there. And um, I think about, uh, first of all, this like we're talking about like what it's like to to be in the uh, to have the war zone be in your in your backyard Mm. versus having the war zone an ocean away from you. But then I'm also thinking about the proximity of, um, like information. And I just wonder what you both think about that in terms of like, um, can people be a little bit like Lily is a little, is self-centered because she's an adolescent, but can people be self, do, do people have the privilege of being self-centered because they just don't know what's going on genuinely. There's not, there's not a social media feed that they can look to and see And this is also something that uh, Virginia Woolf talks about too, is like, she's talking about wartime photographs and Mm. like seeing the, um, like men have this like privilege of mythologizing war and conflict and glory and honor, Mm. but then it becomes like, they get equal men and women get equal footing on their perspectives on war. When they see photographs of people dying and they see photographs of bombed, um, bombed out uh residential districts and and things like that um so anyway i just want to i i wanted to touch on that too like this proximity with information
2: yeah i think and how that builds up i think it's tricky um again this is something i think about a lot and i think a lot about even within our own times of uh when we have so much information and how much information we ignore and how much we get on with our own lives and we just think Mm -hmm. i can't i can't process it i don't understand enough Um, and you you do you do just move on, um, and I think again as I was saying, I think when we look back to different times, and then we see the way things have played out, you then think, oh, if I'd been alive, then I certainly would have done something. Um, but yeah. actually, that's the banality of evil: is that you you kind of do you kind of do kind of just get on with your life, um, and you know you you don't say anything, and right. you you move forward. Um, and a lot of that could be you don't understand. I think a lot of, you know, I think like looking back, uh, Second World War, um, you know, number one, a lie that nobody knew the Holocaust was going on or genocide was going on. Certainly people did. Right. And certainly, right. you know, certainly people at a very high level did. Um, yeah. And it is again, it's really interesting to read books from that period and get sort of glimpses and mentions of these things and try to understand mm-hmm. how much do people know. Um, who were lay people. And I'd also point out. I think it's very, it's very, it's very interesting hearing you speak about your grandmother, um, Bethany, because I think there is this, there is this divide as well between sort of people's lived experiences who are, you know, living sort of normal lives versus and then this propaganda we get about the war and it's always glorious and then you get these novels from the period and these people are usually Mm -hmm. much more artistic and much more critical so you kind of get Mm -hmm. very different very different narratives around things so I think I've been so immersed now for so many years in these very critical ways of it Um, so even reading things you know from the sort of 1946 that is already very critical of the atomic bombings Um, You know, versus I never heard really any criticism against it till I was about 18. Like, like yeah. nobody would have dare have criticized it. And some people would say, like, oh, you know, when you were learning about it at school, but you were still mostly given narratives that were very um, very patriotic and very, you know, that's sort where of propaganda, oh, look what America did. Um, and again, I like to think we are moving, I like to think the last 10 years have actually been good and we're moving past those the sort of Bush era. <laughs> <laughs> i mean <laughs> lord knows now um i do think i do think that there is more access to information and people can be more critical and can make up their mind more um even about sure. past past readings uh and I, d- I do think you are right that lots of people just simply wouldn't know what was going on at the time i mean they just didn't sim- they did not have the access to the information that we do now it Would it mostly the information newspapers. was gatekept kept. yeah it just people to think, but I think if you were around things, a lot of times it does just serve you well to keep your head down and move on with your own life. And I think that mm-hmm. is, I think that is what we've, what I'm really interested in, as I said, is how that's actually what most of us would do. And we like yeah. to pretend it isn't what most of us would do, but it really is. Um, mm-hmm. Most of us want to get on with our own lives and keep safe mm-hmm. and, you know, keep happy and have our you know our families and our good times and stay out of stay out of I think the great thrust of history um, and it's really the remarkable individuals who you know can can contribute to it um, mm-hmm. and I think everybody could do that it's just most people just choose not to um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's why as I said like in historical fiction a lot or when you think about history you get these people like you know doing these great things, but for me, that's why Lily is so important because she doesn't do anything. Like she doesn't even help with the war effort at all. Like she's like really, <laughs> she does. She genuinely just sits at home, and it's just sad. Um, but you know, I think I think there probably were more were lots of women doing that sort of thing that weren't Rosie the Riveter, weren't part of this yeah. this sort of mythology of oh everybody was dedicated to the war. I, I just I just don't buy it. <laughs>
1: Well, I think that it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a complete, like, that's sort of what we have been, Mary and I have been talking about this whole, with this whole season and trying to investigate is like, okay, there's a myth of like, and and like these war epics of like, and the men were off and fighting for honor and glory, and they were defending so-and-so, whatever, here's what they were doing. Mm -hmm. And the women were waiting at home and they were completely supportive of them. And that is, and it's just like, well, no, that's uh, not true. <laughs> like, <laughs> women were were still worried about the same thing. Worried about oh, where are they going to get their tights? <laughs> How are they going to color their legs? Women are worried about like, um, um, but also women are are reading. I mean, we we talk about this too with like, Civil War and American Revolution kind of uh, times. Like, women were also like a part of the discourse and actively reading. They weren't just like at home making. Bandages and like doing whatever, whatever, and also, like you see this in little women too, like little yes. women are they're engaging in discourse and they're they're reading material about it, and they're actively thinking about this and again, I really love the three guineas essay because um Virginia Woolf is like, excuse me, like women would never engage in conflict like we see what you guys are doing, and like we would it we would never <laughs> and like and like and, and and she even makes a point of saying, like, you know if you allowed us to participate in society in meaningful ways, or if you elevated the way that you thought about um, keeping the home and raising the children, if you elevate, if you made that a meaningful contribution to society, then you would probably like, we would have conversation and we would be discussing this, Uh, but instead you just like continue on with your mythologizing of this conflict and saying that it's glory and honor and women are taking part of it taking part in it by supporting it and doing nothing else.
2: Right. Like just yes. like
1: supporting from home.
2: Oh, staying home and you know, raising your children to you know also believe these things. Like that's right. that's mm-hmm. that's American motherhood, isn't it? That's the idea that like you you know, indoctrinate it is indoctrination. It shows <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> you what know, these patriotic ideals. And I think I think the Second World War is really interesting in that it it has women doing other things. It does have the Rosie the Riveter. It had women, you know, actually able to go um, to the war front and you know be a wave or a whack or something like that. So there were mm-hmm. there were places for women to participate, and um, certainly nursing has always has always been one. Um, but you know, again, these are i think i think that still requires somebody who is who is much braver than this character in this novel who is is ultimately not brave um and she doesn't and also is quite very selfish like she can't you know think about other people (laughs) and uh you know value value who can at that age um because she never really (laughs) she does think about well why couldn't i've been a nurse why couldn't i've done really anything And I I do think she, she's, she's just not, she's just not there. She does need to take care of herself. Um, But she never, she never, as I said, she never questions. Why can't I be a soldier? Um, She does Mm -hmm. question. Why can't I have every other privilege of a man? But she's never, she's never begging for that one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. Probably because she sees it for what it's worth. And it's just like, I don't want to like leave home and maybe never come back
2: yeah and I think she also th- sees it as quite stupid and you know she doesn't yeah. really she she thinks that uh, Teddy the character she's in love with she thinks what he's doing is not she doesn't think it's heroic she thinks he's throwing his life away um right that he doesn't have to go he hasn't been called up yet and why would he why would he go if he doesn't if he doesn't mm-hmm. have to um why doesn't he stay and be safe and you know I, I think I think she's also a character who will eventually move to being uh quite aggressively anti-war that's how I see her Hmm. kind of coming up is you know by the time you get to something like Vietnam she will be I think a much more active person and you know going out there and saying this is this is you know all evil and you know this is not this is not how you decide conflict so I think she will eventually use these experiences that's how I see her at least maybe not I don't know um (laughs) but you know I was trying to understand how I guess, yeah. How women, how women related to that. Cause you're right. If you, if you, if you are staying home and you have no, you don't have to see the horror of it at first, at first hand. how, how are they supposed to imagine it in their own mind? Right. Right. They, um, like what you get
1: with the image that, that, infiltrates your mind that is so pervasive is just the propaganda and the patriotism mm-hmm. that is being fed to you and it's um it's quite yeah and it's it's quite limiting and and that's also like again I I, I think that um now living in a time like now where there it, there are images of war circulating on social media feeds um you get like you come across extremely graphic content just like yeah. being on the internet and, um, and it can't, it's sort of like, is it, it, that's a monster that can't be kept under control. Whereas I think in, um, during like world war II, the information was very specifically, it was strategic and it was gatekept and the sort of horrors of the Holocaust, absolutely. The government knew about it. Absolutely. People in power in media and journalism knew about it but there were who was being paid off to say what or to hide what kind of information and um and and yeah in order to sort of keep the the people who are staying at home the people who are not being called up in the draft mm. how do you how do you make sure that they remain
2: uh contributing to the war effort so' sort i of focused right. on the this sort of um this sort of glory I mean how do you right. how do you how do you do it? How do you, how do you have that level of uh, is in any way you look at it, um, it is nationalism and you are, mm-hmm. you are trying to raise people to commit to it. Uh, and you know, that patriotism it's, so, you, so I do think, you know, Lily doesn't really fall into, she doesn't really fall into line with the patriotism. She doesn't really seem to be, she doesn't really right. see. And I think, I think, as I said, part of it is that she is so selfish. And I think part of it is her then reflecting back and she's mm. she hasn't come to terms with how angry she is at the war for taking away her, it does take away her youth to some extent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, to no degree as it would as uh, she'd been a young woman living in a different place. Um, she is incredibly yeah. privileged where she's living and experiencing it. Um, but it also takes away somebody who is you know very special to her. And she is, I think that's why she's also quite, um, she doesn't really get into the the politics of it very much or really think about it very much. I think she kind of wants to put it to bed as another trauma and kind of move, move past that period because mm. it, 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 it was, you know, it, well, not to be dramatic, but you know, it sort of, it ruined the way that she saw her life going. Um, yeah, and right. it, it took away options that she thought were going to be there, uh, that, that couldn't have been, um. Yeah, I don't know. I also wanted to say, sorry, this is just like me digressing again. (laughs) But I want to say, I think another really important thing that happened like post-war was, and I don't know if you talk about this in your Second World War episode or your First World War episode, was that it was such an opportunity for young men to see Europe um, for, Mm. for free for the first time. Good point. Um, mm-hmm. especially, yeah, I mean, for like, as if, you know, fighting in a war is like a free ticket to go to the <laughs> world, but you know what I mean? They, they had the opportunity, um, young men who would never have ever been able to go to Europe uh, went and saw these places and uh, that, you know, then they come back and they have these stories about what, you know, Paris looked like. And I think mm-hmm. probably someone like Lily would be very jealous of that, that she mm-hmm. hasn't been able to go yet um, or may not be able to sort of be, you know, able to go. Um, they do have that experience and that comes in in like um like Revolutionary Road um like the film and the book I wrote 28th that sort of idea he he's been to Paris and he's had that bohemian dream and then she she's very that's what attracts um his wife to him is that he has that experience and she hasn't she's been in this very sheltered cloistered America throughout the war Hmm. um so again I think that was part of my part of my inspiration in writing it was thinking about texts like that that would come come after Um, because I think that that's kind of how I'm framing it as well Is not only was her experience having lived through like the 1930s and being infused with the the generation of you know 1920s literature but what does her life look like from 1945 to 1951 when Mm -hmm. she's writing this novel Um, Mm -hmm. what does her post-world you know war period look like Um, how does that reconstruction look for her? And mm-hmm. how, she, how does that impact her memory and her way of understanding um, her youth, which was very much like just divided very quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing we didn't really get into in World War II either is that that the same thing of like, oh, these men are first you know, going to Europe when they would never have been able to see this um, before. And it is for a lot of these people, um, a chance to get out of their life. Like for a lot of those young men, it's like, okay, I'm off the farm, you know, like I am not mm-hmm. coming back to do what my dad did. I'm moving to the city. And there was a huge, massive migration after World War II into city life from more rural areas. Um, and my, my grandfather was a dentist during World War II. Really? <laughs> yes. And he, he grew up on a ranch in Wyoming. Oh, yeah. um, And he mostly was looking at the teeth of new recruits, Wow, drafted men. They were all, you know, country boys who had never, ever been to a dentist before. And he was very glad to be done with the (laughs) service because he was like, it was nasty
2: oh god (laughs) like you know like this is what i love this is what i love these sort of things like that you don't really hear about these stories very much you don't really hear like that level of historical detail where it's so specific um and has nothing to do with because i think they're I think World War II is really interesting because there's so much literature out there about it. Yeah, there's so many documentaries and people trying to understand why it happened and, you know, yeah. why certain things weren't um, done to prevent it more when it felt. Again, you read sort of books from the mid 1930s onwards, and people have kind of resigned to themselves the fact that this war might happen. Um, yeah, and how how do you get into that mind frame? But I love yeah, I love that that sort of detail which you don't you. <laughs> You don't find in places, um, and it's again yeah. much more interesting to me than this. Like, under, like, I don't have any interest in great men's history and that, like, thrust, yeah. um, of you know, history pushing forward forever. And I don't know, it's, I, I want to know, I want to know, like, about your grandfather and the teeth, but you know, <laughs> like, I want to know those, those small details, um, that to life and lots of rotting teeth, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just like John Adams.
0: I know. We keep coming back uh, to that miniseries.
2: I, feel like I only watched it really recently, John Adams. Yeah. It's
1: <laughs> excellent. Yeah, it is. It is really, really good. It's um, great. They politics. committed
0: to, to the, the teeth and the skin.
1: <laughs> they committed to the aging. Again, a timeless yeah. story. <laughs> they're just making it really timeless by making sure to like let you know that there was
2: no toothpaste uh <laughs> yeah i always think about that like I and mean, you do you do kind of have to think to some degree like what were people's hygiene habits and different when, yeah. when you're writing different things like i don't know and i really what annoys me when i read a book again is set in the past is when like number one i was trying really hard not to do this because it's very 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 hard to do that especially with sort of uh female focused heroin um not to just make her a girl of our generation in that time yeah, yeah. That she has to she has to have limitations in the way she thinks and that can be really frustrating yes. and it can be frustrating reading it and sometimes it can come across as like what like oh come on like nobody would really think but you would and you also have to think like okay you know I don't like just different things. Like if you were writing a novel set in the Edwardian period, you'd have to like take into account that they're not like shaving, like, you know what I mean? Right. Right. And you you see these films and everybody just looks so beautiful and is wearing makeup and is, you know, very much a a woman of this time set in that time. Um, And people wouldn't have looked, uh, wouldn't have looked like that. And their, their sort of beauty standards would have been actually more intense than ours to some degree, but less intense in other ways um, because yeah. they, they could only have done so much um, alteration. I don't know. So I like to kind of think of all these these sort of details and get a sense of them um, rather than caring about like what battle was going on at that time. Or mm. <laughs> something like that.
1: I, um, I didn't realize that I was, um, when I decided to stream this movie again that I haven't seen in a long time, but it's one of my, I, I did really love the book. Um, and I didn't realize that it was going to prepare me for this episode, um, but in line with the time period, it was "Memoirs of a Geisha."
2: <laughs> yes, that was, a, that was a wonderful book.
1: Yeah, and right before World War II, right before um, uh, mm. that, the the conflict breaks out with, and Japan has a stake in it. And I, so there's a part in it where um, the Sayuri's mentor has an abortion or it is implied that she is having an abortion um and i was thinking like and this always comes back to me there's always like some mention in these books and i and i hate to be that person like i hate to be that very like like <laughs> like i am a product of an all women's college like everything is feminist like but i was like oh my god what are they doing when they have periods like how are you taking care of that what is like mm. like why does everything seem so like clean and pristine like these women are bleeding for several days out of every month
2: yeah that's got to be
1: messy like like (laughs) I gotta know how that tell us the details yeah yeah yeah, I I get that yeah and like and I just I just feel like oh yeah this woman um who is a geisha and who uh, like uh, her asset is her sexuality and then she's like oh shit I haven't bled for a few months like gotta go take care of that and um and then also you're thinking about like I'm gonna sell my virginity to the highest bidder but that's gonna be fucking messy. Like, what is
2: the <laughs> that, that's the that's the part of the book, okay. Again, this is really strange, but I I read that when I maybe was 14. And the one thing I remember, and this is funny how memory works, um, in that like some image really just captures your mind.
0: Yeah. But when she
2: uh when her virginity is sold to to the to the man who it is, um, she the is described as an eel going into the cave. Oh yeah. Uh, And that is what I remember from that book is that, is that image. Oh
1: yeah. Oh my God. Which was (sighs) grotesque
2: and just like horrible. And, um, you know, obviously it works because you, you, you remember it and it, it, yeah, it, I don't know. (laughs) That's my memory of memoirs of a Geisha.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: It's,
1: it's great. And I, yeah, I totally forgot that it was like completely in that time period on the precipice of world war II and um, and and also wow. very very interesting in in terms of like Sad Girl, um, the Sad Girl myth. It's just like she understands like Japan is coming into this like very westernized mm. uh, sensibilities, westernized sensibilities, and and it also feels a lot like uh, Anna Karenina to me. Um, mm. in terms of like uh these uh these Russians coming into like they have the railway and they they're coming into a Western French ish
2: sensibility, Mm -hmm. way of
1: life. And then you have the women who are like, okay, great. We've like, like, we have been told that the Western ideal, we have been told, we've been sold the myth through colonization, that the ideal of a society of a culture society is Westernization. Mm -hmm. And you have these women who are like, great, this is going to fix everything. And like, the men are all on board with this. The men are like on board with being colonized, being conquered and assimilated into westernization and then for and then women see it for what it is they're like wait a minute that we're still being held back this is bullshit Mm -hmm. and um and then you have someone like Sayuri and who is just like okay well then I guess this is my lot in life and like I was plucked from my village plucked from my family and I'm supposedly coming into a better life because I'm coming into an urban area and it's totally westernized, but now I still have to rely on a man to be my patron in order to, to progress. Um, and yeah. And, and so, and you, that's just like a, that's a through line for, um, that is, that is interesting to me of, of like these, like sad girls are, they're not hysterical. They're, they're like, like it's the culture that is making
2: them sad. It's not. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think it is, um, oh gosh, it's slipping my, what is the name of the test where it's like two women, there has to be two women oh, characters talking about something. Yes. Um, do you know, I always find that difficult because I do think in lots of not, okay, obviously it's, that refers a lot to in films and books written by men where the women are just like, Bullshit, like you know, like they're not real characters, and they're like, yeah. talk. I mean, there was one book I read, and it was, I, I'm just gonna say it was by Jay McInerney, and he, he the way he wrote to oh. me is just like disgusting, yep. and it was like she was like, I'm just wondering, like how when he's gonna get his dick hard again? Like it was just like all these things. I was like, no woman is like, maybe we would say this to each other, but like it would be like with some sense of irony. Like it was just like <laughs> it was just it was just. I don't, it was like a, a blow up doll version of a woman. Um, yeah. And he was trying to write a whole novel of first person in this. And I was like this, I just can't oh, do no. it. I just can't do it. It is, it is it is? there's no sense of perception there. Um, but I do think in things uh, that are written by women and carried by women actresses or in novels. Oftentimes we do talk a lot about men. Um, and we, we do this in our lives as well, because, that's that we, I think we're talking about ourselves because for so long, the only way a woman could have any sort of life was through a man. Um, Right. And, you know, when, when Lizzie and Jane talk about, you know, who they're going to marry, they're talking about what life do you want? They are talking about themselves and that, that that is really sad. Um, And that's still an issue, but I think to, to understand that, yeah, women have for so long had their whole economic stability um a way of life and I think you know to some degree we still do um you know put through put through a man and how how do you how do you then deal with that how do you say when you're talking about where does the man end and you're talking about yourself hmm. yeah that's a good point so that that was kind of another thing in the book so I did think at some point I was like oh gosh the girls talk about men like a lot <laughs> they talk about sex a lot um yeah and Lily and Lara don't really ever. They actually really don't talk about anything else to each other again. So I was thinking like, oh, is that really, really down? You know, is that not good enough? Should they have other conversations? But I don't. I don't think Lily would be capable of having another conversation with Laura. I don't think mm-hmm. the, 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 their connection with one another. Um, they don't really have much of interest, similar interests. They've shared mm-hmm. a childhood together. They um, share certain traumas together. Mm-hmm. um But they—that is where they sort of meet, um, and as I said, that's kind of how they—they they are talking about what they want out of life, what they want for the next ten years of their life, by by talking about men or Lily, you know, sort of ultimately saying, "Well, I don't think I want to get married." And for Laura, that is just a complete impossibility for her to understand, right? Um, mm-hmm. That because and then it's also supposed to say, "Well, you know, Laura's choices are valid as well. Like she does, she does want that life." Um, right I think she's been very much conditioned to want that life, but you know Lily can't always I think Lily tries to always put her own feelings onto Lara and that's where she she feels perhaps the most guilt is that she she never listened to what her friend might want um, that there are that there are other stories to be told other right. than just just her own.
1: Mm. Very Mona Lisa smile there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's a good film. now again that's uh, that's the yeah. same sort of period um mm-hmm. yeah there was a, there was those sorts of women I was thinking about or like um what's her name Betty Friedan who wrote the the feminine mystique and right. she would have been about the same age as Lily so again that's kind mm-hmm. of what I was saying like I see Lily then going on to being I think a much more sort of active member of society um I mm-hmm. think she will I think she'll be I think she's going to be sort of a yeah she's I think she will stop being I think she'll be able to channel her sadness into something else eventually I hope (laughs) that's what my hope is for her uh, is that she can use it in sort of a progressive way um but again I think she needs it she needs a community and she needs a support system if she's going to be able to do that (laughs) because yeah she doesn't she doesn't ultimately have anybody she doesn't have any friends who will listen to her Um, which is, you know, uh, you know, still, still a huge issue for, for lots of, of young people.
1: Yeah. And you see that in, um, it's really stark now with like people trying to become content creators now. And like this whole like influencer attention economy as well is that, um, is that people are constantly trying to broadcast and, um, and and have have people who listen to them and um and also people an audience to bounce things off of i think that um i think that that's also a thing uh, why it's so important to to also have characters in fiction be um very ordinary and very normal and like living a day-to-day life in these novels mm-hmm. it's so important because then you have you gain more sympathy for people who are living ordinary lives now in the present mm-hmm and it's just like can you really like people love to uh shit on young people who are trying to who are just like doing their best in this weird like everything is on the internet your whole life is like out there for everyone to see and um and you're trying to gain attention because that is your capital how much attention how many clicks how many views you can get that is your your um your asset now and it's just like you have to be a little bit more sympathetic to that because people are just trying to like live their lives and trying to work out what the fuck is going on. <laughs>
2: uh, like what is happening?
1: Um,
2: um, yeah, but there is, there is more, there's more, both more and less, I think potential for connectivity there. Um, mm. And yeah, there's, I think someone like Lily, she's from a small town, um, much like I am but, and she doesn't, there aren't women who she's able to talk to um, about, you know, essentially the sexual assault that she's gone through. Um, Mm. And again, you know, I think people very, only very, very recently started talking about those things. And I think literature has only really recently been able to talk about those things and address these things. Um, And I think there are lots of sort of sad girl, quote unquote novels now.
1: Um
2: (laughs) you know like Sally Rooney and things, um, Mm. and Megan Nolan. Oh yeah. These stories are really important because it it is saying that, you know, you don't you you don't have to do something heroic um or something big um to be to be a literary character. They can just be very normal interactions that happen in Mm -hmm. lives and have these very sort of thoughts that are going on. Um, And you know, people need those books. I think if I'd had mm-hmm. the, those books as a young woman, I would have felt uh, I, I think that's part of the power of literature is you do feel less alone. and mm-hmm. having these stories reflected in literature, I think does make you feel less alone um, because you know, well, okay, fine, somebody else has gone through it. Um, maybe maybe this isn't mis- maybe this isn't so unique. Uh, and I think like a character like Lily both wants to be incredibly unique um, but also wants to be very ordinary and mm-hmm. wants to know that her experiences are ordinary and yeah that there's a support network out there so yes I think it is yeah I am I'm really happy to see that these these stories are being more told and there's more recognition for them Mm -hmm. um and it's yeah like that's I also work in publishing so like kind of that's how publishing is (laughs) like you like kind of like lapse onto these trends and then that's everything um I think it is I think it is a trend at the moment um but I think that it's a very important trend that I hope doesn't isn't just like boiled down to like oh it's just sad girls or you know like oh Sylvia Plath knockoffs and stuff like that I mean (laughs) I don't know I always say like never 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 date a man who doesn't appreciate Sylvia Plath (laughs) if you you know genuinely if anybody ever says there I have been on dates with people where they'll be like oh Sylvia Plath but never seeing you again that is
1: (laughs) red flag it's no, a red
2: flag yeah. if you cannot appreciate um, genuine, genuine good art um, <laughs> and a fantastic writer and you're just going to dismiss her, um, you know, and I think that's just, just, just sorry, I could rant all day about this. Do you need to like say this is over. Um, I think it's just dismissive of, of women's literature in general. Uh, Absolutely. I will, I will say this and then you can shut me up, but um, one thing I think a lot about again like where this book kind of serves to me is it's kind of um again Simone de Beauvoir talks about it in the second sex that she says there's only a few great novels written by women um again because I think sort of Simone de Beauvoir is trying to like knock down other women and say like I'm the one who gets to be up there with the men um I think that's part of her you know and I don't think she's purposefully doing that but I think that is that is part of her internalized um sort of conflict uh but you know her point of view. And I think this is true. And I'm not saying that this diminishes anybody's greatness. Um, because I think, again, the way we look at the canon is obviously a very much a tool of to the patriarchy. Um, yes. <laughs> but <laughs> I think in some degree, women tend to write very um, novels that we look inside uh, that are very sort of personal, um, very insular. And that make, uh, for me, what I want to do with the book is to make the political personal. So we understand mm-hmm. that period, what it might have looked like, um, and there are bigger political ramifications going on there, certainly with sexual politics, um, mm-hmm. but in some degree, you know, historical politics too. Um, and we see that through the lens of a very specific character. Mm-hmm. Uh, versus men tend to write, you know, sort of war piece They write these great big epic novels, and I do think is easier to look at those novels and then you say oh those are great because those are you know those are timeless they you know have so many characters they have so many you know overt political statements um versus yeah I I quite like the I like the small I like a small devastating novel rather than a a great big novel
0: (laughs) obviously there
2: are other connotations of what I have just said as well I totally get that that's what
1: I aspire to be just like as a person, small and devastating. I mean, I'm already small and very, <laughs> I'm very short. So <laughs> um, <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I do think I I think about now that I mentioned Anna Karenina, my mind is like spinning, the wheels are turning about Anna Karenina and thinking like that, how, um, it, it was, it was so close to being kind of this like very epic, like given all the, uh, focus on like the family, the happy family versus mm. the unhappy family. And, um, it was so close to getting there except when he, except he just like puts into stark contrast, like, and the happy family is, um, uh, what's her name? Kitty and, and Kitty. Yeah. Yeah. And like, they are so happy because they had a baby and they have a family and they're like homesteading in russia great and like anybody who dares any woman who dares to go outside of that is the one who is unhappy and the one who has to die
2: and she's yes. like martyred
1: like anna is martyred for sad girls everywhere kind of thing like yes
2: yeah and my big one is obviously um as well the madame bovary
1: yeah that
2: um, she she has to yeah again I don't think these women innately want to be sad. They're just sort of, they're not allowed to, they're not allowed to live their lives authentically um, mm-hmm. in, the, in the way that they, because of the pressure is what society tells them. And a lot of those pressures are internalized pressures um, too. Of the way we are taught that we have to behave as women. Um, but obviously they're sort of in different times where those are much more overt pressures as well. Right, <laughs> They'll be ostracized right. in society for having affairs um but you know you know Anna Karenina obviously the men are having affairs and nobody seems really right happy. yeah um yeah and I think I think Tolstoy has a good try I think he's I think he, he has a good go at writing woman <laughs> yeah <laughs> much I'm better curious... than Jay McInerney I will say that I, yeah <laughs> I think most yeah. people do writing better than Jay McInerney I don't know am I allowed to say that that's know. still an opinion right? that's not like <laughs> that's not like um yes. libel or anything right
0: I was actually ahead of this podcast. I was rereading um, because it really felt connects me to the essence of an hour. Um, Heroines by Kate Zambrano, I think. And that she's taught, it's like part memoir, part history about hey. like, the wives of modernist right hey, I mostly. don't know that. Yeah, it's great. But it is all about like Vivian Elliott, Zelda Fitzgerald and like all of these women most of whom at one point or another weren't institutionalized. Yeah. Um, but largely be like, there is so much there that a lot of their sadness and grief is from being unable to participate in society, the way that their husbands are, mm-hmm. um, and then being treated as if they're crazy because of that. Yes. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it really like, I was like, oh, this like feels so informative while well, I was reading Essence of an Hour because I was like, oh, yeah. Like there's just a lot of that same push and desire to want to be in the world, to want to have an adventure of some kind, like yes. a romantic life and not and not really being able to.
2: And to be able to produce work as well. I mean, I think someone like Zelda, you know, she she was, you know, well I don't think she was a great writer um but I think that's also because she (laughs) I think she also wasn't given time to develop as one um and her husband had nicked all the best lines um and sort of formulated them into his own his own work so but I think you know that is somebody who was a very much very talent I think she was very talented she could have been much better than she was but she wasn't ever given you know the proper outlet um and was you know in this what it sounds to be from the one biography i've read of her which is a very good biography actually called zelda um by nancy milford not Ma- nancy oh milford, yeah the writer of um uh pursuit of love and love in a Cold climate um, which i thought it was the same author for a long time it's but it
0: not wasn't. <laughs> she writes so she does do some biographies
2: because she does do some biographies but yes I,
0: so. I think they're like like biographies with
2: a lot of my opinion <laughs>
0: Sort of biography. Anyways, sorry, keep going. <laughs>
2: it was, it was, it was really, and it, it was, it was really, um, it was really depressing to read after a long time because there were just huge sections of about ten years where Zelda and um, Fitzgerald's marriage was breaking apart, and you know he was just not being supportive. Um, and they would go to 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 help get her um, sort of, you know, sort of mental help, and they would say, right, your wife needs you to stop drinking in order to have a stable home. And he'd be like, no, I just absolutely cannot stop drinking. And he'd be like, cause she's just crazy. I have to drink because she's crazy. And then she'd be like, well, I'm going crazy because you drink so much and you're emotionally abusive. And they were just in this horrible sort of cyclical relationship yeah. over and over yeah. and over again. Both, both, you know, not able then to do their best work. Um, so yeah, I think that again, we rom- I think we romanticize their relationship a lot through, through, through Gatsby and Daisy or much based on them. Or my favorite tender is the night. Um, mm-hmm. you, and again, I think there's something in that, like in the book between Lily and Teddy. And she sort of, I think she romanticizes what could actually be not a very, it's not a very good relationship. I think that they could head into that sort of territory um, mm-hmm. where, you know, they're both both very competitive, um, both clearly want to be artistic, um, both also, you know, very much he does, but she does to some degree too, have very much a, a big dependency on alcohol and sort mm-hmm. of substance abuse um and are sort of trying to cope through their their traumas with one another um so I was thinking about I was thinking about couples like that uh who we have put this grand romantic illusion on um like a H- Kathy and Heathcliff it's like our Kathy and Heathcliff if they'd actually been alive and written some books right um right. and they feel like these you know glorious jazz age babies but you know, at the end of the day, there was a great deal of suffering there. Um right. we've we've lost a lot of good art because they weren't properly able to, to get you know good help um mm. on both of their sides. I don't know. Again, sorry, I'm just ranting again. No, <laughs> COVID not has been very long. long, you know. You <laughs> sit at home all day thinking these thoughts. <laughs> While you're them. waiting for your husband to
1: return from the war, you just <laughs> have so many thoughts. I know.
2: <laughs> hey, my COVID story is like we kind of did have a thing like my husband was in this room I'm in right now sort of battling COVID and I was just like on the home front um. cooking shoving the meals through the doors while wearing my mask and trying to isolate <laughs> <laughs> sort of testing every day and trying to get through it um, oh my god but yeah I think again like that 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 for me like then having written the book it was already going to be published um sort of got the offer just as, as sort of first lockdown was starting at least here in the UK but sort of going through the redrafts and thinking about it, and then thinking like, oh, we we're also going through a very historical, um, significant yeah. moment, and how does that how does that relate? And you know, what will people what will people's lives look like when they tell these stories? Um yeah. and it's you know, those are again as I do, I always thought that's what I was interested in history, and then for that to kind of um, echo back in our own times was quite was quite interesting.
1: Yeah. And people are gonna have this record of this time too, again, through like uh, the weird social media stuff that went down, like TikTok and- Yes, and, the Ratatouille musical.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so weird. <laughs>
1: um, but yeah, people were incredibly um, <clears throat> uh, vulnerable and and expressive on the internet during like while they were at home and isolating and people are going to have that as a record that they look back on and it's going to be like oh my god there was like a huge conflict going on like very geopolitical very um high stakes with like a pandemic and because you don't have that during the 1918 flu pand, a flu epidemic in america you don't have something like tiktok where you know what teenagers were doing while everyone was of the flu and so now and so then you know decades down the line from now people are going to be like wow people were dying of this virus and
2: people were making girls- tra- that yes yeah, so i think yeah. that is kind of it like we were being <laughs> so selfish like covid's really interesting isn't it because most of us it wasn't a gender thing so much most of us were forced right. to be on the home front of covid um and right. experience it from from the safety if we if we could do if we were, we, we were able to do that um, obviously lots of people weren't well, like then they try to make this whole like narrative about doctors being the warriors, um, mm. stuff like that. So it is, it yeah. is kind of yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about and how we were sort of wrapped up in our own lives so much during it. And I thought like somebody like because again, like I would always think like, oh, if I lived through the 1940s, I would have been a nurse so quickly. And it's like, no, <laughs> I wouldn't have. Like <laughs> I would have been like a Scarlett O'Hara. I would have done it for like two days. and then seen Yes. And then been I'm done. <laughs> I, think, I think it is important that we admit that to ourselves. Because then again, I think about COVID. It was like, what in the world did I do? I stayed at home. I sat and I stayed at home. And I read the Zelda Fitzgerald biography. And, you know, that was... <laughs> And the second sex, I, you know, the worst COVID experience, but um, you, you sort of, I think that you do, st- that there is something to be said about staying home on the home front and how that also invites a lot of selfishness and sort of self centeredness. And um, yeah, but I think lives go on. Like that, that was my big thing. Yeah. Life goes on through all of these things. Yeah. And when you think about that period, like you think about the Second World War and you think that everybody must have cared about the Second World War every single moment they were awake. I pro- probably most days you forgot about it if you were living in a very yeah. place in America in a very privileged um part and you could just get on with your life and you weren't you know contribute to the war and yes you would have felt it in many ways in the same way that we felt COVID um and we still feel COVID in our everyday lives mm-hmm. um, with things like rationing or you know with the news reports but I think mm-hmm. you've also probably much more than now you could just turn that off um, to some degree. You could you could not read the news. Yeah. You could go into that sort of um, that sort of self centeredness a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I just kind of wanted to. Yeah. I kind of wanted to understand what that what that would look like. But I
1: do want to introduce to, uh, just like as a recommendation. And I like sorry this is redundant, and I'm always going to be like on my shit with this. Uh, And perhaps Mary and I should do like a dedicated episode so that I can just like get it out of my system. But um, I'm wondering if, Susan, you know who Mabel Dodge Lujan is? (laughs) No. Mabel Dodge Lujan is um, like epitome. She's a real person. Uh, She's not like a fictional character, but she's like epitome, sad girl, lost generation. Uh, But she has like an opposite trajectory of someone like Zelda Fitzgerald. She is the person who um is from was born into a wealthy family in Buffalo. Um oh I'm from Buffalo. Yeah. Um my, my
0: sorry, my partner and his whole family are all from Buffalo as well. And they wanted me they? to say, hey, what's up? Basically from Buffalo. <laughs> you are from Buffalo.
2: <laughs> do you know buffaloes those weird cities because you know who else was <laughs> in buffalo sorry to digress back again Fitzgerald was from buffalo really i did not yeah, know yeah also that. F. F. Fitzgerald is technically a catholic writer
0: huh. <laughs> i also didn't know that
2: yeah it's fascinating the He's sad boy the catholic church but the it was banned by narrator. the catholic church the great gatsby for a while oh sweet <laughs> seal of approval <laughs> yeah I know it's like where she needs like a summer reading list just go find the list of banned books <laughs>
1: yeah yeah exactly um uh also another just another slight digression before I move on to Mabel but uh sad boy narrator I had mentioned that to Mary in our first season talking about Wuthering Heights but Mary that came from Susan like me and Susan oh, were literally what? sitting in a club in college and talking about being like the sad boy narrator, like observing everything. Do you remember that? We were in fucking
2: fever, club fever. Yes, and I always was <laughs> like, I mean, I was always like, I just, I get, you know, I go to these places and I just, I am, I am Nick, you know, <laughs> living through it and the outside.
1: Yeah, that's why I, I automatically read Holden when I read uh, Essence of an Hour, but I think it was, I was like, wait, is this obvious? Or is this just like, because I knew you?
2: <laughs> just, no, this is a really interesting experience because I've not um I've not spoken sort of uh like publicly um with somebody I know and have had similar experiences with about the book. So it's it's just really uh, fascinating to hear kind of like what you what you know to be sort of true. Um, but you have to say like Lily and I don't sound alike. I don't think.
1: No, no, and I think it comes across that she's she's of her time. You you would okay. never have the same thoughts as her because you are uh, because you have critical thought, like you have a certain like reflexology or reflexiveness on like feminism and critical feminism. Mm.
2: Mm. Yes, and she doesn't have anything like she doesn't, you know, the feminism to her would have been like Seneca Falls and yeah, uh, getting the right to vote, and that's about right. that's about it, right? Um, not right. To say, not to diminish those accomplishments; those are huge. But like she wouldn't, it wouldn't be progressive in her mind but I think she's coming toward a period where it would anyway Mabel Mabel (laughs) yeah
1: yeah. uh yeah (laughs) Buffalo 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 pride (laughs) (laughs) um Mabel so yeah she's very much coming so so both of you have this context that is that's great so you have you have a context of, of Mabel she's born into a wealthy family in Buffalo um was immediately married off at age 20 um there is some like parts of her memoir, her, uh, she published prolific memoirs. Um, parts of them were censored by her family because she was just like, it, it's like a psychosexual horror show, um, in her memoirs because she, uh, and the hypothesis is that she was infected with syphilis. Um, her father gave syphilis to her mother and then she was born with it. And so she probably had some sort of like psychosis, um, induced by that. Oh, um, but she, people just wrote wow. her off as being crazy, uh, of course. Um, But anyway, now in, um, I think like the year 2000 is when these censored memoirs were able to be like put out into the world. So people are historians are just now like investigating this. Um, But she basically, she got married off. She hated it. She hated like being a mother. She hated being like confined by marriage, ended up divorcing, moving to Florence um, in the early 1900s, had this whole like salon um, sort of like, I do know this woman? I do yeah, know her. She's very yeah famous. Yes, had had this like artist community. World War One started, she moved back, she went back to America, moved to Greenwich Village, and also like was part of the whole Gertrude Stein scene. like she was very much a behind the scenes architect of that group. And then after World War one, um, there's this like crisis in America of nationalism and America is saying we need to have a national identity in order to be able to like be a world superpower. This is what takes other nations down It's not having an identity to to rally behind. And so she um, by happenstance, because of her second husband is a because her second husband is a painter and he's living in a TB community in Santa Fe, New Mexico. She comes to New Mexico, immediately falls in love with it and fetishizes the indigenous people who are um, because she's never encountered an indigenous person in her life before. And she immediately fetishizes their way of life and um, becomes extremely anti-Catholic, anti-Hispanic because she sees the Spanish people as being colonizers without herself understanding that she is also descended from a lineage of colonizers so she doesn't she's like completely unaware of that whole intersectionalism um she moves to taos and then she's responsible for bringing dh lawrence to new mexico um she's responsible for bringing georgia o'keefe to new mexico ansel adams the entire modern art like modern literature modern visual art um renaissance that happened in taos is because of mabel and because she had this massive estate that was built by um uh, the Pueblo Native Americans who were living at Taos Pueblo. Um, and she builds this massive estate for her artist friends to come. And, um, I am very harsh and judgmental. And I say that she's like the, I mean, I'm obsessed with her, but I say (laughs) that she's the reason why Taos is ruined. Uh, um, she's a very, I, yeah, she's a complex lady, but she it's, it's really interesting because I think about I think about D.H. Lawrence. I mean, Mary and I have talked about him. And D.H. Lawrence, like he can't. I I really haven't like delved deep into any of his novels, but I he's just like insufferable to me. Um, I I like and he, he does. He makes an a
0: uh, Lady Chatterley's lover makes an appearance and. The essence of an hour she's reading that at one point I think
2: yeah yes yeah, she is yeah so she has the um sort of I think like edited version so I tried <laughs> to think when I was writing it what books she'd be able to get her hands on so like she can't ever read Ulysses yet that's too much mm-hmm. but she can get sort of the um the sort of desexified uh version slightly well without without certain certain four-letter words um would be the version that she would read <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, yeah,
2: but yeah, I mean, oh, I could go on about D.H. Lawrence for a long time, right?
1: But- and he and and. but I can't now I'm like, I'm trying to read him through this lens of like there was behind D.H. Lawrence was this woman who was very much like becoming being molded because she's born into a very wealthy family. She inherits like a bunch of wealth in Buffalo. And she's told that she has to be married, have a family, whatever. And her son becomes this like weird lackey in her life. Like she, like her, it's it's really weird. But she's this like, um, she's like chaotic sad girl. Like extremely chaotic. And I can't recommend it enough to read some of her memoirs.
2: I will. That's really fascinating. And I think that actually points out a, a, something that is interesting about sad girls is that they can actually be deeply problematic. Yeah. And there can be things that they do, which are. Uh, even like someone like Jane Eyre, like looking back on that, just bring it full circle back to Jane Eyre. Obviously, <laughs> but they do things obviously. that are not um, that these women are not always heroines. Like they can be heroines in some regards. They can do something that we see is as, as modern and progressive, like throwing off the shackles of a of a bad marriage and you know yeah. going and living your own life individually. But then they can you know um, be you know xenophobic or r- often racist um, mm-hmm. and have all these negative qualities too, as being, you know, certain people usually other times, but also, um, yeah, I just, I just find that really interesting. Some people like to then sanitize that and say, well, they did such a, such important thing. Um, mm-hmm. and then there's always, you know, the opposite reaction as well, but I think that it is important to see, you know, like these are complex human beings mm-hmm. and just because you are, just because you're radical and progressive in all one way, often does not extend the whole way so that's really mm-hmm. that sounds really interesting
1: yeah yeah she's a super interesting sad girl and I think that D.H. Lawrence becomes like he's trying to mythologize like he's trying to do some shit with ladies but then he's also like mythologizing Mabel in his own head and like he's see- but he ultimately sees Mabel because she has this like homestead in Taos and he still sees her he still maps her into this like domestic space when it's just okay like- No, bitch, she's more well 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 traveled than you. (laughs) Like she's like seen all this shit and I don't know. It's it's um yeah, she's a toxic girl.
2: (laughs) Sad girl. (laughs) Toxic sad girl, toxic,
1: chaotic. Yeah, no, I
2: think that there needs to you should do a whole episode on that's what I'm saying. Like you should do a whole episode on toxic sad girls, their whole series um like these women of like they they were progressive like they did this but um because even I think Virginia Woolf falls into that camp quite largely yeah um some of her some of her writings are uh <laughs> not to be recommended or some of her opinions um and yeah I think often I think she is somebody who is often quite sanitized and sort of said yeah. like people try to edit her um mm. but I don't think that's useful and I don't think that gives us a useful I don't think that gives us a useful understanding of where we've come from and what history really looked like and what conflicts were going, right. you know, around the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, yeah, to sort of understand what was happening in 1930s, just Europe, full stop. Like you need to understand, you know, lots of people were thinking, you know, very nationalistic yeah. uh, sort, sort of thoughts and, you know, like that's certainly like a Nancy Mitford and stuff, but mm-hmm. um, right. Again, wow. it gives you an idea that like history doesn't happen in a, doesn't happen in a vacuum or in a sort of bottle that it is it is everywhere um and it is from like you know people just getting on with their lives to the big to the big historical figures Um, yeah sorry I've just said a lot of said a lot of things we love it
1: We love it yeah (laughs) that's excellent
0: (laughs) yeah I think actually that's a great place to kind of start wrapping up because that is like where i don't know like what we're looking at like yeah these individual lives and then the wider context of them and how we're looking at them now versus um you know the the context that they were in and that's what i really liked about the Sense of an hour because it does give context to that time period which i don't know i don't think i've seen in a, a modern
2: novel a contemporary novel recently Thank like that you thank you very much for that yeah no that's what I was trying to um yeah those are the sort of things I was trying to think through while I was while I was doing it and and also I think um I'll just say this like I think as well what I do like about fiction from the past or historical fiction is when you do read it and you're like oh but we're much better now um (laughs) our society would never behave like that and then you actually feel really uncomfortable when you realize like oh yeah things, some things still do remain quite true and there's that uncomfortableness. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's where it confronts you to, to see the way that women are still treated and the way we still, I think, put each other, one another down and the way we still are limited um, that are not uh, not as apparent as I think it would have been for um, someone like Lily in her time.
1: Mm. Yeah. We're so blinded by, by our present moment. <laughs> that's
2: my that's my closing statement. <laughs> it is hard to look beyond. Yeah.
1: Um. Well, thank you, Susan. This was yeah. Great. Thank you for
2: having Susie. me. Thank you very much
0: for having me. And is I guess for any listeners. Um it would be
2: great if you could share like where they can find your book or any other new projects coming up for you. So, yes. So um, you can find the book. Um, So if you're based in America, you can obviously get it through places like Barnes and Noble. Um, If you, you can usually order, if you have a a particular independent book shop that you like as well, you can usually order it through them. They can source it for you quite quickly. Um, It is available in the UK through all the usual places like Blackwell's, um waterstones foils um it's also available um through my publisher at um their website and they are valley press and i'm currently working on a second novel so um which again mm. we'll we'll see how that goes <laughs> <laughs> um sort of in the redrafting stage which is very exciting um and again i think that's that's kind of what i'm just interested in in is, is you know, how do what do women's lives look like at specific moments in history? Um, mm. And trying to, yeah, just understand how we, how we keep on going under the patriarchy <laughs> to get to this present moment. <laughs> um, so that is what, that's what my biographer will say about my work one day. Um, <laughs> uh, Where are yes. we, how do we get here? Um, and you can follow me on social media um, on instagram at uh susan ferber uh, so that is susan and then ferber f-u-r-b-e-r um writes and i post a lot of um some updates about writing but also usually about other sad girl novels that i enjoy (laughs) nice
1: yes (laughs) amazing um yeah, thank. It's you're so generous with your thoughts. It's not ramblings. It's complete generosity. Well, thank generosity you very much for
2: listening to them. Um <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you. It's been Susan. lovely. Thank you for reading the book um, and for your thoughts.